nice for me to be able to go walking. I hadn't been outside yet today. So, um, nice to feel the snow. So one of the interesting things about snow is that it lands on everything equally. It doesn't discriminate. It lands on the bare branches, on roof tiles, dog shed, old growth pine needles, and probably not far from here it's landing on kids, cars, homeless people, and their shopping carts, cold people. So it just lands on everything. And uh, it's a lot like awareness. So when we're practicing in meditation, whether it's walking meditation or sitting meditation, as the busyness of the attention span starts to settle, And as the tongue becomes quiet, and the eyes become quiet, and they're not grasping after things, then awareness becomes very stable. And then it's like a a great vow, which is just the, the practice or the vow of including everything. And most of us, we just like to include in awareness what we like to include in awareness. And the interesting thing about meditation practice is on the the line of awareness, uh, what's joyful will arise, what's peaceful will arise, and you will know peace that's deeper than any other peace. I've felt happiness in silent retreat deeper than any other happiness that I felt. And you'll feel suffering deeply. This is true also. And so if we think of awareness as like snow, it just, it doesn't discriminate. It can land on anything. And and it lands softly, you know. You never see snow, like, coming down hard. Even when it's windy. Um, unless it's hail, uh, the snow it comes down so softly. Snow is a, is a, I think maybe that if you trace this lineage, it goes all the way to snow. It precedes the Buddha and goes all the way back to snow. 
So it's good to be here in the snow lineage of Ontario. Did anybody do this practice when they were kids of sticking out their tongue in the snow? And just feeling when the snowflake hits the tongue and then starts melting? Maybe we should have done that, <laughs> that practice for two hours before lunch. Because the yoga is just so intense. We just stand there with our tongues in the air. So, yesterday we covered this sentence uh, in Dogen's Mountains and Waters Sutra that if you examine in detail, you'll notice that mountains are walking. And in summary, I hope what we gathered from that is that what you think of as solid is actually walking. And this is not just the solid things that physicists tell us about, like the way this floor is spinning faster than my hand, so my hand can't get through it. But actually, the, the, the rigid places in our lives that we've set up are, are flexible, actually. Maybe some of you are already feeling how your shoulder joint actually it has more flexibility than you thought. Or maybe around certain emotional patterns, if you include them in practice, then there's more flexibility. In them. I mean, maybe this is what really haunts us, is when we have experiences in our lives that we, we can't have space around. That's the place where we get neurotic. That's the place where we get anxious. Because there are certain patterns that become like mountains, and they become heavy, and we think they're solid, and that they exist in time. And then, we don't see them as walking. So, this is what Dogen seems to be saying about mountains walking. Um, and then, and then he, he adds a little joke. You may not think it's a joke, but he adds a little, and I know you've all read this many times. But he has this little joke saying, if you, don't, if you doubt that mountains are walking, um, then you should practice backwards walking. You should practice walking backwards. So a lot of people who are kind of literary, they're like, oh, this is a metaphor, you know. But actually, at Center of Gravity in Toronto this past week, this was our homework, was everybody had to spend time during the day for a week walking backwards, practicing walking backwards. And I don't know when the last time you walked backwards was. My son does this all the time. He picks the busiest street, you know, and then he'll walk backwards. Um, last time, I, I, I was with him in the spring in Manhattan, and he decided that this would be a really good place to do backwards walking. <laughs> Anyways, that's another story. Um, 
But the nice thing about walking backwards, it's kind of like in a yoga pose when you're in an introduced to a new yoga posture and you're upside down and you don't know where your armpits are, where your knees are, where being disoriented actually allows you to include much, much more. So again, this is like awareness as this non-discriminating practice. The one way you can explore this is walking backwards. And, and I don't think it's a metaphor. I think Dogen seems to be uh, suggesting that this would be something fun to do. Um, now my favorite part. Then Dogen says that um, eastern mountains, okay, so the green mountains, remember the green mountains or blue mountains? They're walking, but the eastern mountains, he says, are traveling on water. And eastern mountains are practice realization. Anybody see this term in the text? Practice hyphen realization. This is another one of Dogen's great insights that practice is realization and that realization is practice. So that when you sit here, this offering of sitting is actually enlightenment or enlightening. And how do you express your enlightenment through practice. Most of us, when we're practicing, really deep down, we're practicing because we're trying to get somewhere. Even just to get a little more peace. We want to get somewhere. And Dogen is suggesting, what if we practice just because we have a realization that we were granted this life? Like, how, what if instead, when you go to practice, you're practicing because you have this awareness that you, you got the grant? <laughs> you, know? you didn't even ask for it, and you got it. And you got this life with snow and suffering and, you know, uh, caregivers. Some were excellent, some so-so. And this is what you were granted. And so because of that, out of the appreciation for that, you want to get to know it. You want to get to know this life because of gratefulness, because of this appreciation. As opposed to this way we invert that somehow and say, but actually my life's not good enough. And so I have to practice to make, to, to, to get good enough. Does anybody feel this way? And then it's never good enough. The teacher's never good enough. Food's never good enough. Retreat center's never good enough. There's always either too many people, too few people, not the right people. And then everything else we believe has to change for our, so that we're satisfied. So Dogen's saying that eastern mountains are practice realization. It's kind of an interesting idea that the mountains are not just realization. So this is like, if you know traditional Indian um, Buddhist um, mythology, the mountains are kind of solid and they represent what's timeless. And Dogen's saying, actually, the mountains are constantly realizing themselves and they're constantly giving birth. And your life is like this. Your life are like these eastern mountains, and you're constantly giving birth. 
constantly giving birth. Each moment, you're giving birth to that moment, and that moment is giving birth to you, back and forth. And then Dogen says, at the same time, you're both a child and a mother. It's kind of an interesting idea. As soon as you have a child, you are a mother. But then, because you're a mother, you're also a child. I mean, I think everyone here is probably a child. Well, hopefully you don't think of yourself as this anymore, unless you're still walking backwards. And then he says, but those eastern mountains that are practice realization, so mountains that are realizing mountains, are all floating on water. So this is another way where he just kind of digs in, because the mind goes, oh yes, mountains, solid, you know, they're, they're, they're giving birth to life. And they're saying, oh yeah, and they're also floating on water. In other words, take your idea of solidity, even if you have an idea that solidity is flowing, and put it on water also. So it's flowing. And then he says it's flowing like Mount Meru. Mount Meru is um, a mountain in Buddhist mythology. And uh, I don't know how many of you have heard, heard of this. It's also called Mount Sumeru. And Mount Sumeru is very famous because it's upside down. It's the weirdest mountain, you know. It's upside down, so the tip is at the bottom. And in mythology, once upon a time, the gods and goddesses wanted to find the sweetest nectar they could find, which is called karuna, which means compassion. And they thought the best way to find the nectar of compassion was to take the ocean and to churn it. Does anybody here churn butter? Vegan butter? Does anybody churn butter? Okay. If you've ever churned butter, it's a lot of, a lot of work. So this is what they did. They took the mountain, ghee. Do you make ghee like, oh no, you don't churn ghee. You heat ghee. Okay, butter. butter. You have to deal with the butter. So you, they took the mountain. Remember the mountain's upside down? And they put it on the navel of a tortoise. So you have to stretch your imagination. Remember, mountains are walking, eastern mountains are flowing on water. It's no big deal to take a mountain, turn it upside down, and put it on the navel of a tortoise. So the tortoise is on its shell. It's like it just finished backbending, right? It's holding its knees, maybe. It's lying on its back. Mountains on. And then the gods and goddesses take a serpent and they wrap it around the mountain. And the gods and goddesses take the head, and the demons take the tail. No, the gods and goddesses take the tail, and the demons take the head, because the head is a fire-breathing head. And then they wrap the serpent around the mountain, and then they start churning the ocean by spinning the mountain on the navel of a tortoise in the middle of the ocean, because this is the, the only way they're going to get any nectar. Any compassion. So anyways, this is going on. <laughs> the whole ocean's churning. It's like massive tsunamis, probably. And then um, Mount Meru starts spinning. And then it starts spinning the other way. And then it's, So Mount Meru's actually being spun. And Mount Meru, in Indian mythology, is a metaphor for the body. 
So the body is being churned by this practice. Anybody of you, any of you feel that before lunch today? <laughs> that you're being churned? It's like, oh my God, I didn't know I could actually feel that feeling right there. So anyways, the mountain's being churned. And then out of the central axis of the mountain, the sushumna, the central axis of the mountain, a horrible stench appears. And this scent, which is toxic, starts coming out like plumes out of the center of the mountain. And it fills the universe. And like ants are covering up their nose because it smells so bad. Birds stop flying. Nobody can handle it because everything smells so bad. And I always thought this is like exactly how our practice works, right? You, you come to the insight meditation because you want to feel the nectar, man. Where's the nectar? You want to feel compassion. And then you start doing the practice and it starts churning you. And what comes out? Well, not the nectar. What comes out is actually toxic, toxicity. All of your addictions, your distractions, your habits, old unprocessed grief, craving that can't ever be satisfied, all of this starts coming out of the ocean. Nobody knows what to do. The central axis is just spewing toxins. And this is when most people quit and they start doing, you know, like Pilates or <laughs> some other spiritual practice. So nobody knows what to do. So they have a big general assembly and um, they call on Shiva. Actually, an interesting footnote here is, remember we were talking about Shambhavi Mudra? The word Sham, like in Shamata, actually comes from the word, it's a nickname for Shiva. And Shiva represents pure awareness. So Shiva just represents snow. Right? Awareness that can just include everything. So then Shiva comes, and Shiva has this really long tongue. It's like Alice Cooper. <laughs> has a really long tongue like Alice Cooper. If you don't know who that is, you need to read up on your Buddhist literature. <laughs> Buddhist chanting. <laughs> so anyways, Shiva comes, and Shiva takes his really long tongue, and he slides it, he inserts it in the center of the mountain, central axis, which is actually the soft palate. It's called Indrayoni. And Shiva inserts his tongue in the center of the mountain and slides it down to the bottom of the mountain and vacuums up, remember Tadakamura? Vacuums up all of the toxins right in to the root of his tongue. And then his throat turns blue. That's why sometimes Shiva is called the blue-throated one. Or if you see, you see him you know, painted in India, he's got a blue throat. So his throat turns blue, and then he releases his soft palate. And just does this. So he takes the toxins, and he doesn't swallow them, and he doesn't spit them out. Well, the story goes on. Well, that's the best part, actually. That's actually the main teaching in the story. 
is that when the toxicity arises, you have to let go of your expectation of the nectar. And most people, all they're doing is expecting the nectar. I was like this. For the first, the, the whole first phase, I think, of meditation for me was just that I had done too much reading about people's mystical experiences. So then I was just trying to make it happen. You know, like when I was eating my meal, I wanted it to happen like when so-and-so ate his meal. You know? And then so my mind was filled up with all these stories of everyone else's mystical experience. And then the practice gets frustrating because you're not having the experience because it can't happen to you in the way that it happened for X. Your life can only happen to you in the way that it's happening to you. Otherwise, the, the idea of what's supposed to happen in meditation practice actually gets in the way of your life. So then, Shiva doesn't swallow the trouble and also doesn't spit it out. So swallowing is attachment, right? Like, does anyone have this with their problems? Attached to their problems? Has anyone here spent, like, way too much money in therapy? Like therapists in here? So we tend to do this with our problems sometimes, right? We get really attached to them. And we actually, secretly, we want them. And we're actually sometimes a little scared to, to let them go. You know, and we get like this in meditation a little bit. Like sometimes we start opening, and then uh, we get a little scared, but we don't realize we're getting scared. So we just kind of reach for a problem, and then we try and work out the problem in our practice, and then we're using meditation time, doing inner psychotherapy. You know, which is cheaper actually. <laughs> um, so that's attachment. Or you have a pleasurable experience and you just want to keep it going. This is attachment. And we're born this way. This is just human nature. I remember this with my son. When he was uh, about a year and a half, he started really liking bananas. Okay? So one day he was sitting at his, his table, you know those like... Uh, I don't know what they're called. You pull up to the, the you know, what do they call High chair. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, and so I had cut up all these bananas for him. And he has very big cheeks. Some of you have met him. He looks like Dizzy Gillespie. He's got really big cheeks. And uh, so he stuffed his face with, it was like the first time he really figured out that bananas are sweet. You know? So he stuffed his cheeks like a chipmunk does with banana. And his hands were covered in banana. And then there was no more banana, and he was crying. He just wanted more banana. There actually wasn't a place you could fit any more banana. It was just like, if, unless you put them in his ears or something, you know? And at the time, I, I, I was writing, writing, and I thought that this is, this is the biology of attachment, right? Is the desire to just repeat pleasurable experience. And that, so that would be swallowing the nectar. Or dvesha, aversion, which is spitting out the nectar. Which is like, oh, 
I only want to meditate on God. But this pain in my knee, like, I don't want this. This is, this is like a pain. This is a distraction from God. Right? Or I only want to meditate on pure light. Right? Or I only want to have insight at the level of Nagarjuna. And then um, we're not really with what is. So this is the story of Mount Meru that Dogen's referring to. But actually, this is exactly the alignment of our practice, is that when you don't swallow or spit out what's arising, you release it through the palate. Remember that? So in the meditation practice, you just let the base of the tongue drop with a soft smile, like Shiva's smile. And then you have the anatomy or the physiology of karuna, of compassion. When there's natural feeling for compassion, there's an absence of attachment and aversion. In the absence of clinging, because attachment and aversion are both clinging, then compassion arises. The tongue releases. It's like this when you see grandparents playing with kids. Uh, How many of you are grandparents? Few of you are grandparents. Grandparents playing with kids, or with grandkids. Never like this with your own kids. Your own kids, it's just suffering. Like, <laughs> but with grandkids, it's easy. You know? um, there, there's just this little smile that happens. You can't help it. Right? We're all like this when we're serving people. Yeah? Just a little. You get out of the way. So this is what Shiva's doing. So that's, anyways, that's the Mount Meru reference. So then Dogen is saying, well, that Mount Meru is practice realization, and it's floating on water. So this floating on water is really important. So what that means is wisdom, right? the wisdom that one acquires in practice, um, it's floating on water. So this is kind of interesting, because most of us, we get a bit fixed with this idea of wisdom, like <coughs> wisdom is this thing you get one day. Does anybody ever feel that way? Like, or insight is this thing. One day you're going to have insight. I've been hearing about this insight, you know, and one day maybe I'll get it. As if it's like something you could buy, you know. But Dogen's saying that, that actually wisdom, these eastern mountains, they're flowing on water also. So that wisdom is actually something constantly changing with the circumstances. You may gain wisdom in practice, But when the circumstances change, the wisdom also needs to change. And so practice is one's ability to open to the conditions or the circumstances, but the circumstances are always flowing. So actually you may hit a place in practice where it's really peaceful and there's not a lot of reactivity. You see this a lot on retreat. This is a short retreat. But on longer retreats, what you see happening is is people start to get to this place just after a few days where they get really calm. And as soon as someone comes in for an interview and says, you know, I'm really, really calm. Always a little flag goes up in my mind. Like like I can picture them in a couple days. Because it seems like what happened is we get into this calm zone And then it's almost like the shaft of awareness drops, you know? And then we're ready 
for something new. My grandmother used to always say, if it's not one thing, it's another. (laughs) And this is what happens in practice, is as soon as the calmness starts to show up, it's also flowing on water. It's also walking. So the calmness comes, and we start getting a bit attached to the calmness, which is good. It's okay to be attached to that. But also knowing it's going to go. And then you can't change what comes. You know, you're, you don't know what your life is going to bring you. It, that's, uh, you can't change the input, you know. And then the wisdom has to be reworked to meet those situations. This is what Dogen's saying here about water. Then he keeps going. Gets better. Water... So now, so he's been talking about mountains, and now he's switching to water. Water is neither strong nor weak, neither wet nor dry, neither moving nor still, neither cold nor hot, neither existent or non-existent, diluted or enlightened. Those are all the cliches about water, right? When water solidifies, it's harder than a diamond. Who can crack it? When water melts, it's softer than milk. Who can destroy it? This is not really studying the moment when humans see water. This is studying the moment when water sees water. It's one of my favorite lines, Buddhist literature actually. Maybe we should unpack it a little bit because people weren't rolling over, (laughs) awakening, vibrating. (laughs) Um, So what Dogen seems to be saying here, just like mountains, is is water is not what you think it is. Everything you think of as water is not water. I had this experience once with with a student who I I was seeing privately. We would have one-on-one meetings every week, and he had a Ph.D., and he was so smart. He was so much smarter than me. I loved just listening to him think. But all that thinking really didn't help him very much. And so he was talking one day about his sadness. And I had been giving a talk on this uh, sutra. So I said to him, "It just you know how things just kind of pop out sometimes? You may have noticed that about me. <laughs> so uh, I said to him, what's water? What's water? What is water? He's like, oh, well, it's fluid. And, you know, he talked about the compounds and so on. And I'm like, yeah, but what, what is water? And you could see all this, you know. And he couldn't say it. He couldn't say it. As if you could say it. What, what is water? And then so he had this kind of realization that he, could, he, he couldn't figure it out. And then that became the, the way we talked about his sadness at the time, his depression, was that what he was doing with his emotions is he was trying to figure them out all the time. Just like we're always trying to figure out our lives. And then we live in this upper level of solutions, of a managerial life, 
where you're just moving things around like there's these solid things and if you just put this over here sell this acquire that get rid of him put her over there send so and so that way fire that you know then every and then it's like we're living just in the solution place but the dharma is is a life in the solutionless place in the place of water but as soon as you say it the dharma's water the mind goes oh the dharma's fluid and then you miss it so dogen saying it but it's not anything you can think of you can't think your way into it so much so that when you walk down to the river dogen saying here it's not darcy meeting the river it's not janet meeting the river it's not dharani meeting the river it's not joyce meeting the river it's water meeting water your body is 70 something percent water right we all know this i mean most of what you are we call we think of ourselves as sentient beings but actually we're made up completely of the insentient sentient means has a sense organ we have this idea that there's you know we're sentient and the insentient is like this or the water is insentient it doesn't have a sense organ but that's absurd the sentient is the insentient and that your water so dogen saying when you go down to the river from the perspective that's not conceptual dogen saying that's actually just water recognizing water just like what happens when you really connect with another human being your humanness recognizes humanness and the palate releases compassion arises it's just water recognizing water i grew up uh, jewish and one of the great things about judaism uh, zen comes second but judaism wins is judaism has prayers for everything zen they have a lot of prayers but nobody has many prayers as the jews they have like so many pra- they have a prayer for everything even washing your face or walking into a room and i met this rabbi when i was young who told me this prayer for washing my face and i thought this was the most interesting thing and what you do is when you wash your face you say a prayer and then when you're putting the water on your face you visualize how the face is water so it's like water meeting water and then you visualize the water going back through the tap through all the plumbing through the city filters or the well all the way back up and there's actually one chinese poem that says you can trace the river all the way back to the cloud and so you just and then you experience yourself as interdependent as inter-existing 
not just as like, well, there's me and my face is dirty and I'm going to wash my face. But rather, in the washing of the face, it's just water meeting water. So this is what Dogen is saying here. Um, This is not merely studying the moment when human beings see water. As he's saying, like, if you just say, oh, the water's flowing, that's a human being seeing the water. He's saying, this is studying the moment when water sees water. Because water practices and realizes water, water expresses water. In other words, water is also practicing. How ridiculous that we think we're human beings and we're practicing, nobody else is practicing. But water is practicing, and mountains are practicing, and maybe water is sentient. And maybe humans need to appreciate the sentience of water. As opposed to that's just like material stuff over there. Then Dogen, oh, he gets funny here. Uh, Some beings look at water and see it as wondrous blossoms. Have you ever seen that? Like, you, you know in Ontario, there's so many places where you can see rapids, but you know the rapids that are skinny and slow? You know? And when you look at the bubbles in the rapids, they're just like little lives, you know, little blossoms. Dogen saying, some beings see water as wondrous blossoms. Some beings see blossoms as water. But hungry ghosts see water as a raging fire or pus or blood. (laughs) Could you imagine just like going out to the water? I'm just going to go walk along the river. And then you look at it and it's just pus. Human pus flowing down the river with a little blood mixed in. Do you picture this? Try picturing this. Because then you know what it's like to be a hungry ghost. So I don't know how many of you have heard of the hungry ghosts. So maybe that just needs a tiny bit of unpacking. So um, Dogen says, um, or not Dogen, but this is another kind of reference. So just keep in mind, Dogen started practicing He's nine years old. He's ordained as a monk as 13. He's <laughs> very young. So he's steeped in Buddhist literature. So he's constantly making these references. And probably at that time, everyone would have known what they meant. But now sometimes they need a bit of unpacking because when he makes that reference, we don't know what he's referring to. Um, so the hungry ghosts, and this will be the, the last thing that I'll, I'll say today, The hungry ghosts are descriptive of places in us that are like ghosts that are always hungry. And then no matter what you give them, 
they can't ever be satisfied. Hungry ghosts have raw tongues and their necks are very, very skinny. Their necks are so thin. So if you give them food, they can't swallow it because their tongue wants it so much, but they can't swallow it because their necks are too thin. And their stomach is so bloated, it has all the wrong bacteria. So it can't actually digest anything, even if it got down there. And the hungry ghost is that place in us that can never be satisfied. It doesn't matter what you eat, you can't be satisfied. It doesn't matter who you marry, it doesn't matter how many children you have, it doesn't matter if you don't. It doesn't matter if you crave enlightenment, it doesn't matter if you crave, um, I don't know, RRSPs. Um, bananas, thank you. Um, nothing can satisfy you. Nothing. And there's a place in all of us that can't be satisfied. And in a way, in many ways, the Dharma practice is actually getting to know the place in us that can't be satisfied, that's always hungry. And learning how not to feed it, but also not to starve it, just to know it, to know that place in us that's always hungry, that only sees water as blood and pus. And there's actually an image of the hungry ghosts, if you read all, all the ancient literature, where they're all sitting at a banquet table. So picture this big banquet table filled with hungry ghosts. And there's all this incredible food, so much abundance. It's like our world right now. Right? All these hungry ghosts at, you know, in Davos, Switzerland, sitting at this banquet table with all this amazing food, and the utensils are four feet long. Okay? So they go to pick up some food, like beautiful, you know, like fresh croissant, gluten-free vegan croissant, <laughs> they, warm. They go to pick it up, but they can't get it in the mouth because their utensils are too long. So they go, oh, I want that. <laughs> oh, I'll have a little bit of that, you know. And so everything just gets thrown around. And, and the, the, the worst part of it is that if you had a utensil that was four feet long, you could use it to serve other beings. You could use the utensil to recognize someone else in need who's hungry, and you can pass them something. But they're so consumed with their desire and their craving that they don't even see anyone else at the table. So they never even think to use their utensils to relate to other beings. And these are the hungry ghosts. And they live in you. So, so, someone whose work I, I have always admired 
and I know a few few of them, you, you have met him, we brought him to Toronto recently, is a guy named Bernie Glassman. Um, Bernie, when he was uh, young, was on a retreat, and the teacher was giving a talk, um, Taizen Mizumi Roshi in Los Angeles, was giving a talk on the hungry ghosts. And Bernie was a, a young student, um, very dedicated, and he was a nuclear, uh, no, an astrophysicist. Um, he worked basically, you know, designing missiles and uh, for Lockheed. And um, the teacher gave a talk on the hungry ghosts. He'd never heard of it before. And he was so moved by this talk on the hungry ghosts, he packed his bags, quit his job, and moved to Yonkers in New York, which was the place in New York State that had the highest rate of homelessness. And he decided he would devote the rest of his life to ending homelessness in New York. That if there were so many hungry ghosts, this was his realization, that hungry ghosts can't be satisfied. So he had this realization that his ghosts can't be satisfied. And he turned his life around. And he went to Yonkers and he started a bakery. And the only people who could be um, uh, who could be employed in the bakery? His goal was to make the best cheesecake in New York in this bakery, but he would only employ people um, who were either coming out of prison or who were homeless. And instead of doing it as a nonprofit, he did it as a for-profit. And then he took the money and he started buying buildings around the bakery <coughs> to house all the people working in the bakery. And this became a, a successful model that I, I learned this year is actually studied in, in, in all, you know, all the top business schools. Um, out of this realization that self-centered happiness is a dead end. You can't get happy for yourself. And I'd add, you can't do a spiritual practice just for yourself. When your practice includes others, really seeing how other people have needs. You have needs that you need to know to have a life. And also, other people have needs too. And it's really important to see those needs. Simultaneously, we also have cravings And they lead us to false forms of nourishment. Where we don't realize it's the hungry ghosts operating, so we eat another cupcake and another cupcake. And I just don't mean empty calories. I mean empty relationships, empty careers, empty houses, empty cars. All those things we think will make us satisfied. And they don't. And we keep doing it. So in meditation practice, you sit here on your cushion and you watch impermanence and you watch how cravings are walking. They're walking. And then hopefully some of you have the intolerable feeling of really, really wanting 
everything to be different. And instead of going into the fantasy, you just feel wanting. You just feel what craving feels like. And you get to know craving. Usually when we crave something, we just start moving things around. Oh, I can't buy those shoes. You know, I can't buy that dress. It's so expensive. And then you talk yourself out of buying the dress. But you never really worked with the craving. So instead, we see that the craving is walking. The craving is on water. And then instead of focusing on the object, we just get to know what craving feels like. What it feels like to be a hungry ghost. And then we realize that there are ways to take care of the hungry ghost. And we have to get to know those. And they're different every time they appear. But it's not by changing the object. It's by learning how to be open to the craving that can't be satisfied. That's a good title for a book. The Craving That Can't Be Satisfied. I'll tell Gabor Mate. The Craving That Can't Be Satisfied. And then, water meets water. Snow becomes water, becomes clouds. Everything's okay in the world. And then, it's not. And then the craving comes back. So this is our practice. This is what Dogen's getting at here. So his references to Mount Meru is a reference to releasing craving. And I actually don't like to say releasing craving. Let me re-say that. Because I think if you say releasing craving, it's a bit idealistic. It, 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 it kind of gives you this feeling like, oh, yeah, I just release craving. and then, But, you know, that's not really how it works. You release craving, and the release is on water. So, like, next week, you might have to learn how to release it again. And the release might not work the same way. And that's why there are different techniques to release that over time. And it's really, really, really a waste when you have ideas about your practice that you don't see as craving. I've wasted so many hours on the cushion trying to get something to happen trying to want things to be different trying and what we're doing here in this practice is we're not trying to reorganize the mind all we're trying to do is relax the mind so it's fresh the next time we meet craving whether that craving comes as attachment or whether it comes as a version. This is our practice. And then, when you practice, you're practicing because you appreciate that this is what you've got. And when you're a hungry ghost at the banquet table, 
you, you don't have appreciation for what you have. And you can't appreciate others because you can't even see them. Because you're just so hungry. Is this talk making anybody hungry? So this is our last full day of practice, and I encourage you, um, yesterday I encouraged you to see things as walking, and today I encourage you to include everything in awareness. So that when you think about concentration, it's not like this, but it's like this, just like the snow. Snow is concentration. It just touches everything without discriminating. So allow in what's, what's yelling at you. Allow in what's just knocking at the door. They say traditionally the teacher-student relationship is like a chicken and an egg. There's a little baby chicken inside the egg, and it has to tap from the inside. And the chicken has to tap from the outside. And they both have to tap in just the right way for it to crack open and something new to emerge. And I, I just, I like thinking of this metaphor just with all of us meditating, doing this practice, and also just the natural world. The natural world is sentient. It's not insentient. And it's tapping all the time. It's sending you little messages. Breathe. Feel sadness. Hey you, you're not feeling sadness. Feel sadness. Hey you, you're not breathing. You're not paying attention to your hamstrings. So I'm going to wreck one of them. And the natural world is always sending us these messages, and so we need to listen. And this is the Mountain and Water Sutra. Life Sutra. Your life is babbling, you know, trying to say things. And our job is just to include those. So I encourage you to take this vow, this vow of just including everything in your practice. This is what Dogen's asking of us. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.